Well, good morning. My name is Aiden. I didn't give you a chance to respond. Good morning. All right, is that, that's the way it's supposed to go, I guess, sorry. Um, common, normal things, right? I have trouble. So uh, I'm an associate pastor here at State College Alliance Church, and it's my joy to uh, share with you what God's kind of stirring in my heart uh, on the scripture we have before us today. Uh, before we jump into that, I do um, just want to share just a couple of thank yous. So thank you, uh, uh, we as a church staff, the pastoral staff, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Seth, Pastor Dan, who's on campus with ACF, and myself, were able to go to our district conference uh, once a year, all of the pastors in the Christian Missionary Alliance, that's the denomination that we're a part of, we get together um, for encouragement for our, our lead pastor, our district superintendent, to, to speak into us. Uh, they brought a speaker in as well, just to, to pour into us. And what, what do we do there at district conference? It looks a lot like this. There's a lot of worship. And then the, uh, the speaker's name was David Lane. He came and delivered some very powerful messages on the gospel. Like, even, like, we never get beyond the gospel. And this is what our district is all about. They often say gospel transformation that leads to gospel multiplication. That but before God expects us to go and do something and make an impact in our community, he, he wants to transform our hearts. And it's not just a one-time thing, but it's an everyday kind of thing, a gospel transformation. That's what we're hearing. That's what they're telling the pastors. That's what I'm going to pass on to you, gospel transformation that leads to gospel multiplication. That's what our district is about. So I thank you because the church sends us and makes it possible for us to be there. Last month was also uh, pastor appreciation, so I thank you for all of you who wrote a note and dropped it in the boxes back there. It was, um, I'm working my way through it. Uh, we actually, from Pastor Seth, he said, oh, well, our family will sit around the dinner table and we'll open the cards and share. And so that's a really great idea. So we'll share with our family and just what the kind words that you've written. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're working our way through. My wife was like, okay, let's open another. Let's open another. Let's, let's get through them all, like kind of like a Christmas morning sort of thing. And I was like, Let's just do one or two, and I'll save some more. I think it drives her crazy. <laughs> like, I just want to see what they said. And, and, uh, but, uh, so I'm working my way through, and like some, someday maybe there's some encouragement I need, and it might just be a card that you wrote that I'll pick up and open and read. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your encouragement. So today, we are uh, in the middle of a series called Bible Heroes, Flawed Leaders, and a Faithful God, and we're working our way through some large chunks of the Old Testament. Uh, we started in Joshua, and then into Judges, which uh, Pastor Seth had some pretty hard stuff last week that he was preaching through of this, how far the people of God had fallen they didn't even resemble him or his ways and what they did, how they treated one another, and just the brokenness in their lives um, that pointed to the need for the gospel. Today, we go on to the next book, which is the book of Ruth. So um, hold on to your, uh, hold on to your hats. We're going to go the whole way through uh, all of the book of Ruth in one Sunday, see if we can do it. Um, but it's almost like the complete opposite picture where, where the end of Judges was complete total darkness in the land that revealed their need for a savior. This is like the complete opposite, a picture of God's love for us. So may it be a bit of a balm if, if things were rough. Uh, last week, may this be a bit of soothing from the Lord of his care and his love and his kindness. The other side, 
uh, of the gospel story. It's not just our, our brokenness, but it's our, our creator's love for his creation, for the ones he created. So um, we're going to jump in, and uh, the theme that, that I didn't come up with this theme, it was a, a theologian by the name of Christopher Ash. I was listening to some resources, and he came up with the, the idea of what he sees in the book of Ruth, of this idea of being from empty to full. So this idea of emptiness to fullness that we see of what is God doing in the book of Ruth, because it's not without trial and without tragedy as well. So I'm going to jump in uh, into the first verse and uh, give us a little bit of context here of, of where are we in, in the grand scheme of uh, scripture. And it says this in Ruth verse one, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So this tells us the context when in time are we? So we are right smack dab in the middle of the book of Judges. So maybe not quite the part Pastor Seth was preaching on at the end, but like the middle of Judges. When what? The, they had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is in the middle of that time period when um, a lot of bad stuff is happening. And yet we see in the book, you know, in the character of Boaz, there's three main characters, Boaz, Naomi and Ruth, we'll be learning about today. In the character of Boaz, we see this remnant of God's love and kindness and like the upright character of God through Boaz. But there's more, and if you look in scripture, there's more to the context of it, of when this is happening. Uh, if you were to read the beginning of the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter one, verse five, it's giving the genealogy of Jesus. And in verse five, it says that there's a, a character, Salmon, it's, it's spelled like salmon, S-A-L-M-O-N, but I don't, think it, I don't think it's salmon. I don't know, but I think it's Salmon. I'm going to say Salmon. But Salmon is the father of Boaz. Boaz and Ruth. By who? Who is his mother? Boaz's mother is Rahab. So, if you remember from a couple weeks ago when Pastor Aaron was preaching about Joshua, when the Israelites were coming into the land and they were about to take over uh, Jericho, they sent out two spies and the spies went into Jericho and they were, they were hidden by this prostitute named Rahab. So what happened down the line? Okay, they, that Rahab was rescued and was saved. You can read the story to see how that happened. But then what happens with Rahab? We don't get the rest of the story, but we get one little verse in Matthew that says, well, she must have married this guy, Salmon, Salmon, and um, they had a baby, Boaz. Boaz has nothing to do with fish, right? So his name, there it is. So Boaz, so they fathered Boaz by Rahab. So this is only like a generation or so beyond Rahab. And then a if you look at the end of Ruth, we're just a couple generations away from the next book, which is 1 Samuel, because they give the genealogy after uh, Naomi, and it's Ruth, and then Ruth has a child who is Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David. So there's only this, this kind of genealogy here that leads us of this. This is like right in the middle between uh, Joshua in the middle of Judges, right before the book of Samuel, which we'll be looking at uh, starting next week. So that's some of the context of where we are. And so this is what it says. On the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So one more cultural context in here is this country of Moab. Where are they going 
Well, the Moabites were sworn enemies of Israel. You can trace their lineage in uh, Genesis, Abraham's nephew Lot. If you remember, you can read the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Uh, Left the city, don't turn back to look at it. His wife does. She turns into a pillar of salt. So it's Lot and his two daughters. And then his daughters are like, we're the last two women on earth. We've got to, you know, procreate. And so there was incest with Lot to one of the sons was Moab. The Bible has a lot of crazy things. So this is how the the origins of where Moab came from. And then, uh, as Israel was coming in to uh, the promised land, the the king of Moab, Balak, he hired Balaam. Just not too long ago, we were talking about this story, where Balaam was cursing. uh, Well, he was hired to curse the Israelites, but, but God wouldn't let him do it. He said, I can only speak blessings over God's people. So they were trying to prevent the Israelites. The Moabites were trying to prevent them from receiving the inheritance. And then even in, if you look in Judges 3, uh, 3.14 says this, And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. So even sometime around when this story is happening, they were enslaved to the kingdom of Moab. So when, when, when this guy, we find his name is Elimelech, when he travels to Moab, he's like going into enemy territory. There's a famine. How desperate must he have been? to be in Bethlehem, to have no food and say, you know what, it's really bad here. I think there's a little bit of food in our enemy's land. We're gonna go there and try and scrape a living for ourselves. This is what's going on in the context of Naomi's life. So verse two, we'll keep reading some of of chapter one. It says, the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But then tragedy strikes, verse 3. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one wife was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. And then tragedy strikes again in verse 5. And both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So she is a foreigner living in this foreign land in a culture where the men take care of the women and provide for them. And she has no hope. What is she to do? So she arose with her daughters-in-laws, verse 6, to return to the, from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she hears a rumor. There might be some food back in Israel. I have no hope here. I'm just going to pack up and go, and maybe, maybe there'll be something there. We're going to skip a couple verses ahead, but she, she encourages that the Moabite women who married her sons are like, don't come with me. I have nothing for you. Verse 12, she says, if I should say I have hope. So she had like no hope whatsoever. Not only that, I'm going to jump ahead. She had no hope. Orpah says, okay, I'll take your word. I'll leave. It says, but Ruth clung to her. And then picking up in verse 50, 
She says again to Ruth, she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. These might be the most famous words from the book of Ruth, most quoted. It says, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. What is she saying there? She is, she is making a covenant promise to Naomi. And people often think of this book as a love story between Ruth and then Boaz, who comes along later. But this is a story of covenantal love between a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. So guys, there's hope for you out there, right? Right? <laughs> yes, there's hope. But these words that she says, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. If you were uh, you know, an Israelite hearing this, your mind would jump back to God in speaking. Um, let me find where it is. What does God say about himself? He says in Exodus 6, 7, when he's talking to Moses, what does he say to Moses? I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Just as God said that to his people, now this person who's not even from the family of God is saying, I want to make this same promise to you, this covenant. The outsider, the foreigner, showing and demonstrating the love of God. So it says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said, no, no, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant in, in her language. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. He says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And hear what she says. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So there's Naomi at the end of chapter one, hopeless, bitter, empty. She says, well, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Her eyes are like down on herself, full of shame. How do you think she felt coming back into this community? We're like, hey, is this Naomi? We know you. And she's like, yeah, don't look at me. I've got nothing, nothing left. This past weekend at the district conference, our district superintendent brought back again to us this idea of a gospel ladder and, and how sometimes we often view the gospel in a wrong way. And if we can put it, the picture up on the screen of what is a, a false gospel, which is what Naomi is doing when she has her eyes on herself. She says, well, what did I do? Well, I, 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 I failed. I wasn't able to have children with my, uh, my children died. I came back completely empty. This is what I did. This is what God is. And so then she says, then who am I? Well, I am the identity of who she is is based on what she's done. My identity, I'm changing it. Now just call me bitter because that's really who I am. Because what does God do? Well, it's the Lord. He brought me back empty. This is what he, God does, right? And then she's defining who God is when her eyes are not on him and her eyes are fully on herself. 
And I wonder how many of us can relate the expectations or hopes that we maybe had about life and the way that we thought things would go, whether it was, well, you know, I, I wanted to get into the one school and I didn't make it, uh, or what my hopes were, or I hoped that my child, something would go in a certain way and it's not that way, or I hoped this relationship would have been different, but it's not. And then we use that to work our way up this ladder and allow that to define who God is. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Not to say it's not right to grieve. Naomi had every right to grieve. Not to say that we shouldn't lament the things in this world that are broken. We should lament. We should cry out to God. For her to pour out her grief and her anger and her frustration, that's okay. God can handle it. We see this in David. David, Psalms of Lament. God, why are these people chasing after me? Why have you done this? The book in the Bible called Lamentations. And maybe in the midst of like, if, if anything relates in that story of like going out full and coming back and I just feel empty or hopeless or bitter, maybe we just need to give some freedom and permission to lament. And be honest and say, you know what? This did not turn out the way I wanted it to. Chapter two. Go on. Um, if you have a Bible, I didn't put all the slides, all the text I'm gonna lead, read on the screen. So if you haven't already flipped to Ruth, uh, pull out a pew Bible. I'll read it to you if you wanna see it in the text. I'm reading from the ESV if you have a... Uh, that's my symbol for <laughs> phone Bible right there. If you got the, the, the phone Bible that goes with your thumb, right? All right. So chapter two, in this depth of despair, it says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. They kind of plant a little, like drop a little seed here. of Something's going on. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go in the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now she's not saying after Boaz because she doesn't know Boaz. But she's saying, let me go glean. If you're not familiar with this idea of gleaning and why would Ruth say or use this word or what is going on? Well, gleaning was uh, when the harvesters came through the fields, they would allow foreigners and widows who had no other means of survival in Israel. This is one of the laws from Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. It says this, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings, the pieces you left behind of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen, leave them for the poor and the foreigner. So Ruth, in the middle of this time of judges, when it's pretty dangerous out there, if we heard about what Seth was talking about last time, when women were taken advantage of and there was very little protection, Ruth is taking a risk and stepping out and say, okay, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but Naomi, we need some food. And I know there's this law because you've brought me up in your house. It doesn't say this all in the Bible. This is the Aiden version in my head. But I'm guessing she would have known the scriptures that said, I have this provision for you 
foreigner in our land. I have this provision for you, widow in the land, to care for you. And so she says, this is going to maybe be a risk to my life, but I'm going to step out and I'm going to go see what I find. And Naomi gives her blessing. She says, okay, go. Go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And I love this because it just says she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, behold, whoa, Boaz just happens that Boaz came from Bethlehem. And I wonder sometimes, too, when we're in the depth of our, our despair or our brokenness or our emptiness, and we say, God, would you just do some great thing and show me that you're real? And yet, how does he move in small ways, in small circumstances of her just, her head was probably down looking at the grain. She, wasn't, she didn't even know this guy Boaz existed. And yet, by the providence of God, in small circumstances, God moves and he notices her. I'm gonna jump down a little bit um, where he, he asks, actually to the, the servant, this is verse six. He says, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered Boaz, he said, who is this woman? And uh, he answers, he said, she is the young Moabite woman. And even I wonder, you know, the author in writing this, like how he spoke of her. It's like, there, there's no name there. It's just, she's the Moabite woman, you know. The one who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came She's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then listen to Boaz's response and how he speaks to her. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Just showing his heart, the character of this man who she just happened to find. He says to her, do not glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So here, she is coming under his protection. He says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young women have drawn. So here he is providing not just food but water for her. And she falls on her face and she thanks him. And says, Why? And then he answers her in verse 11. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So he knows the story. He knows what happened. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you. So this idea of what was empty now, there's this start, this little glimmer of hope of like maybe God would start to fill this. It's just in physical ways for right now. It's just in the, in the food that he's providing through Boaz. It's in the protection that he's providing from Boaz that she wouldn't be harmed in the midst of this time of judges when people were doing whatever they wanted to. And so may the God, Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so we see, and I think at this point, some people are like, they retell the story. I know I add my parts to it. Maybe I'm biased. But, um, but the idea of like this tall, dark, handsome Boaz showed up and he saw the beautiful young Ruth and it doesn't say anything about that. It just says that there was an upright man 
who did what was required of him of the law and then went beyond that in generosity in protecting his people in his clan. He knew there was Elimelech. As we'll find out, though, he's not, he probably wasn't even in his mind that, that he was the redeemer because as we find out later, there's another person, we'll get to what redeemer means, so if you know what that means, but there's another person in line to take care of it. So if you know the story, yeah, so I don't think there was any idea in Boaz's mind of where this is going. So she goes back to, to Ruth and, uh, and uh, jump into the end of chapter two. And she said, well, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? And then, because she looks at, at what she brings in, it says like she brought in the amount, if you translate it into English, is uh, equivalent would be about 22 liters of barley that she harvested. And then he gave her, he fed her lunch that day and she had extra. So she brought that home to feed Naomi as well. And probably, probably Boaz is like, well, I know you're feeding the, your mother-in-law as well. He takes some extra I'll give you more. They pulled out sheaths so that she could not have to like work so hard. Just extreme generosity. And she said, wow, where did you go? And she says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her in mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And she said, well, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Doesn't mean anything to Ruth. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Something happened in Naomi's heart in that moment. And the word that she uses there for kindness, the word in there that's translated as kindness is this Hebrew word that's called chesed. And, and hesed in your Bible is often translated as loving kindness. We had to take two English words and put them together because the idea around hesed love is so much bigger than just kindness or just love. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible project, uh, Tim Mackey on there, and in his description of hesed is this. He says it's, called, it's a promise-keeping loyalty motivated by deep personal care. And if we look closely... Who is Naomi saying this of? Well, she says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, but it's the Lord whose kindness. There's something happening in her mind here of who God is. Before, she's like, this is who God is based on, on these experiences, but now I am seeing this loving kindness of the Lord. Let me actually reframe my mind on who I believe that God is. And this is exactly who God declares himself to be. If you're familiar with the story of Exodus, uh, again, where Moses, where, where, where God, uh, he, asked, he asked God, like, show me your face, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my face, but I'll let you see my back and I'll pass before you. So he hides Moses in the rock. He puts his hand over him. And what does God say about himself? He declares this in Exodus 34, 6. He said, 34, 6 says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed. Like God's favorite word for himself. And Naomi is starting to retrain her brain and think of like, who is God? And she's still a widow. She still has no hope. It's not like all the circumstances have changed. She's just gotten some food. And that's this glimmer of hope. And maybe God is in this. And maybe God is somebody different than what I think. On this idea of Hesed, um, 
Actually, our, our, the speaker who was speaking at the conference shared a little bit about another definition of hesed um, that I'll get to in a second, but it's it from a guy named Michael Card, who's a, a singer and songwriter and theologian and wrote actually an entire book on uh, the word hesed, which uh, the book is called Inexpressible, meaning how do you even express what this word means? Hesed and the mystery of God's loving kindness. And this is a short quote from the beginning of that book that I, I looked up after hearing this definition from Michael Card. And it says this, it says, I'll have a little bit on the screen, but it starts out this way. It says, one of the fascinating features of biblical laments. Remember, we were talking about lamenting earlier. David lamented, Jeremiah lamented. One of the fascinating features of biblical laments, which so captured my imagination, was the way that almost all of the laments, they transition. The Psalms begin lamenting, which is still a form of worship. And then at some unpredictable point, they transition and they begin to praise. This shift usually takes place by means of the Hebrew letter Vav, which is translated and or but. So they're lamenting and lamenting, oh God, why is it done? But! It's as if the lamenter finally exhausts himself and turns back to the God that he was complaining to or complaining about. And we'll put this part on the screen of what Michael Card wrote. He said, in three important laments, Psalm 13 and 69, and in Jeremiah's Lamentations, the word chesed appears at this turning point. It marks the transition from despair to hope. Hear this from emptiness to a new possibility of becoming filled once more. And this, I think, is what is happening in Naomi's heart. This word, this, this loving kindness. And then here's the, the definition by Michael Card. He, he says it this way. He says, when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Just think of that. This is God who I have no right to anything. I think of scriptures like, while we were yet sinners, he gave me everything. Christ died for us. And so this gospel uh, ladder is being rewritten in, in, in Naomi's mind that she's remembering to redefine who God is and starting at the top and what he does. The very next line in, in chapter two, which is that he, um, okay, uh, may he be blessed by the Lord whose hesed, kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then Naomi also said to her, this man, Boaz, he's a close relative of one of us. He is one of our redeemers. And this idea of redeemer, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but uh, again, in the Levitical law and actually in Deuteronomy, like, so there's two kind of ways that people, many ways that people can be redeemed from slavery. If they ran out of money and they had to sell themselves into slavery, it says that a, a, an, a, a brother or an uncle or the uncle's son could purchase them back and buy them out of slavery. It's redemption, a price paid, a picture of the gospel. Is that when they don't have their land, if they have to sell their land, which I'm wondering if Elimelech, when he went, it doesn't say this, but he very well might have for the money for the journey. I got to sell my land to somebody so I can go on the road. The land was their inheritance. 
This was a gift from God of the land, and this is their inheritance was tied to the land. And he's like, I'm, I am forsaking my inheritance so I can go. Maybe find food. But there is in Scripture a redeemer who can then buy back the land and give it so that the family would then again have their inheritance. There's the idea of the redeemer who then who comes and provides a child when, they're, when, a, when, a, when a, a, a wife is widowed and they've had no sons to carry on the lineage, then there's the redeemer. It seems really weird in our culture, but that the, the, the widowed wife would marry the older brother so that, not so he could have his own sons, but so that his deceased brother would have an heir. It's not about the guy having, you know, getting the wife. To, you know, there's care for the wife as well, but it's all about the lineage not being broken. Her emptiness of this lineage, which was cut off, being filled. So, Naomi says, okay, stick with this guy, because he's generous. He, there's this possibility. They, they stay there for a couple of, uh, through the end of the harvest, it says, and then we're going to jump down into chapter three. So sometime later, after the harvest is done, there, nothing changes in their situation except Boaz is continuing to be generous, doing what he thinks is right in the eyes of the Lord, even going beyond that. And then Naomi comes, or comes up with a plan. She says to, to, to Ruth, uh, in verse three, she comes up to this plan. She's like, here's what you need to do, okay? Here's the next step, because we gotta move something forward here. She said, wash therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, this sounds kind of weird in our culture, but here's what she said. She knew what she was saying to her, and she knew how things worked in their culture. She said, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet. What? Okay, that's weird. And lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Again, I wonder a step of faith of Ruth to put herself in a very vulnerable position of like, here's the men in the threshing floor. The woman's not supposed to be there. And what is going on? Well, I've looked into a couple different theologians like, we don't know exactly what this is. We don't know the culture of the time. But one guy was like, honestly, what happens when you uncover someone's feet when they're sleeping? They wake up, their feet get cold. She's like, it's just as simple as that. It's not some euphemism. It's not some like, go sleep with him. No, it was like, go wake him up. And, and that was the position where slaves would, like the slaves would sleep perpendicular to their masters at times by their feet. So if their master needed something, they could get up and go and get it for them. And then the act of the master would cover their, their blanket over their slaves. Like, hey, you're my slave, my servant. I will protect you. I'll keep you warm. And this is what's going on there. She is coming to him saying, would you take me on as your servant? But in doing so, because he is in their family line, because there is this law of redemption, she is very boldly asking him, would you redeem me? Would you do this for our family? And what does he do? At midnight, this is verse eight, chapter three, the man was startled. His feet got cold. He's like, what? what's going on? There's a woman at my feet. What? He is surprised. He did not expect her to be there. He wasn't like, ah, I was waiting for you to come. No. He had no idea what was going on. And he's like, who are you? He said, I'm Ruth. And she says that. Your servant, putting herself in that position again, at his feet. And then she says this, spread your wings. Or sometimes it's translated as spread your garment 
over me, that idea of the owner covering, protecting, take me on into your household as a servant. And she says, and, and why is the reason? For you are a redeemer. And what a picture of Christ and what he does for us. And we come to him with nothing. And yet he would respond later. Uh, it says, I will do for you all that you ask. Up in that verse, or verse 10, he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, some people are like, oh, is she going after, does this mean she's going after Boaz? I don't think that's what Boaz means. What is this kindness? What was the first kindness? The first kindness was the covenant that she gave to Naomi. She said, this is the kindness that is, everybody knows about this story. Can you believe it? This Moabite woman who is our enemy actually came with this widow and she has nothing, but she's committing herself to this and to our God. What a thing. In Israel, has this ever happened before? And what's the second kindness? This next kindness is her. What's she doing when she's coming to Boaz? She is saying, okay, for my mother-in-law, husband's line, Elimelech, to continue, there's only one way it's going to happen, and I'm going to have to be the surrogate mother. So she is offering herself to be the one who helps to carry on the line and the lineage of Elimelech, which was canceled out. It's an act of sacrifice on her part. And it's an act of sacrifice on Boaz. We'll see that in just a second. So we'll finish out chapter 3 and then Chapter four, we'll be done here soon. So, um, so he, uh, to summarize, he says, okay, I, uh, we'll figure this out tomorrow. Don't go now. Someone might hurt you. I think is the idea. Stay here till morning, but we don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. So you gotta go before it's daylight, trying to keep and protect her, not to say like shady things were happening, but to keep her from being looked upon in a negative way, protecting her. And then he measures out six measures of barley and says, you must not go back empty-handed. And so we see this now even more fullness coming that in what he's providing. And so then the next day, Boaz gets up, and there's a little hitch in the plan because there's another guy in line uh, who's cl a closer relative to Naomi's, and he's like, look, I want to do what's right. We have to offer this to him first because it's his right as a closer relative to redeem you. And so he sits down, which was their custom when they have business. He called elders together, and they all sat down together, and he, he, he let the other redeemer know this land, and it's, it's, a, it's about a sale, is what he says. So he sat down. Uh, he said, Naomi, who's come back, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought you should know so that you can buy it and redeem it. It's your duty. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And then Boaz kind of throws in the, oh yeah, just so you know, well, along with the land comes the responsibility of redeeming the family too. And so there's Ruth, the Moabite, you have to marry her as well. And then what does this guy say? And there's no judgment in the scripture on him. And he says, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. So maybe there's an idea of the cost that this was to Boaz of him. I don't, it doesn't say whether he had other, other, other family or other sons. I don't know. 
but there's this idea, there's a, not just a price for the land, but the price of an inheritance that's now going to go to this new line that's being created and redeemed and resurrected from the dead that now Boaz would carry on. So we'll jump to the end. So Boaz uh, it, it, it took Ruth, and it says, And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So Ruth bore the son, and then I'm, I'm just amazed by this. Then it says, uh, women all say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law. Again, they're amazed at this woman, Ruth. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying this, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, not to Ruth. Yeah, it's Ruth's baby, but saying, look how the Lord has provided new life out of what seemed dead. So, so what well, what is true of God and the representation of, of who God is and his Hesed love for us in the Old Testament is true of Jesus. Jesus, the full, he is the one who has that promise-keeping loyalty motivated by deep personal care for you. He is the person from whom we have no right to expect anything, but who gives us everything. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive with Christ, even when we're dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So may you see today the picture of the gospel in the book of Ruth and what that points to today to our own need in those areas of brokenness and those areas of like emptiness to say, okay, maybe I just need to reframe my mind to see who God is, that maybe there's even one small circumstance that, that Naomi, when she was focusing on herself, she didn't even see Ruth. I am empty. I have nothing. Ruth is here. But if we would lift our eyes to the Lord to say, you know what, even so his loving kindness goes to all generations that we would come to realize who he is it's that gospel ladder going the right way from the top down, you can put that up on the screen, that who God is and find that we have a kinsman redeemer, trusting in what he does, that he responds as Boaz did to say that, I will do all that you ask. He says, my hesed love for you will fill the empty places of your soul. And then it informs who we are, that we become his children that we become, just like there was an inheritance that was a sacrifice for Boaz, there's an inheritance for God that we become co-heirs with Christ. And that all that we do then um, is born out of that love that he first showed us. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And we then walk in newness of life, which then leads us today to the communion table.
So at this time, we can invite the worship team, and if you're serving communion, um, you guys can come on up to the tables. And to take a moment, uh, the band's going to play a song in a minute, uh, and, and just to take a moment to think again on, you know, if you are a believer, what has the Lord done for you? What has he sacrificed that you might be filled? If you're not a believer, if you don't say, you know, I'm kind of checking things out, or I don't know who this Jesus is, then maybe to think on where are the places in your heart in your soul that are feeling empty, that you would say, okay, I don't know who you are, Jesus, but would you show me that type of loving kindness that I don't deserve anything from you, but maybe, maybe you would just give me something that I don't deserve, a glimmer of hope, a word whispered in your heart where he says, I care for you. I love you so much. I would die for you. And so, if you haven't taken that step of faith, you know, please, please refrain from communion because we often say it's acknowledging a sacrifice, that sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf that you have not yet received. But it's also an invitation to say, okay, God, maybe today's the day I'm ready. I just want, I'm tired of being the one who has to like come up with all the answers and not just trust you that maybe there's some hope in this. And would you show me? So, hear these words from scripture. Say the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. We had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, a new promise for you in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I invite you during this next song, whenever, uh, to, to think on that. If there's anything in your heart, scripture says too, to confess your sins before God before we come to the table. So if, if there's something on your heart that's heavy that he's brought to mind, just say, okay, I agree with you, God. I've, I've done things I shouldn't have done. I've left things undone that I, I probably should have done. And you're right. But I want you to define who I am in newness of Christ as an co-heir with Christ instead of letting me define myself on my actions, I'm gonna find who you are and believe the truth of the gospel. So we invite you at any time during the song, you can come forward. There's stations on the left and the right um, to receive communion. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. So Jesus, we thank you that you had that chesed, that, that, that deep commitment to us that you said, I'm not gonna let anything get in the way between me rescuing and saving my creation, my children whom I made and whom I love, and I just wanna be with them. And so you paid the price that we could not pay. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And so you died behalf that you didn't stay dead that you rose from conquering death doing things that we can't do conquering death and sin that you would then just give
give that as a gift for all who would come. So Jesus, would you renew that just that 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 deep love in us, that we would feel that and sense that love that you have for us renewed in our hearts today and just a deeper gospel being rooted in our hearts through the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.